0: Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. You know, when the NJ was giving me that very kind introduction, I was thinking about the Sierra Nevada because there's certain place names that are so evocative of the place that they have this ability to transport you to that place. I hear Sierra Nevada, snowy mountain range, and I think the range of light think of the love that John Muir had for that landscape, I think of all the adventures, all the exciting stories that are tied to the landscape, but you know there's something about the power of mountains that when you are in their presence they efface the in memory of any other mountain experience. So I would be thrilled to talk to you about the Sierra Nevada and the fact that Buffalo soldiers, African American soldiers, were among the first protectors of Yosemite National Park. But to be honest with you, it would be very difficult for me to do that because, you see, this is only day two in Alaska. (laughs) And imagine going all your life without chocolate. No one had ever given you chocolate. You had heard rumors about chocolate. You've read articles about chocolate. And then one day, someone says, open your mouth, close your eyes. And there's a sense of trust and fear mingled with that <laughs> And then there's something in your mouth that is sweet and soft and you go, oh this must be chocolate." That's the feeling that I had as the airplane I was on started to descend into Anchorage. And there was the, the, the Chugach mountains were right there. And I had heard the word before Chugach. Some words seem to be meant to be sung. Chugach. And I heard that in my head. These must be the Chugach Mountains. And I remember that they were sometimes there and sometimes not there. And it seems to be symptomatic of mountain ranges in Alaska, that sometimes they're there and sometimes they're not there. I heard these rumors of some mountain in this park that was referred or is referred to as, what is it, the Great One? <laughs> and I was also referred in the very same sentence, alas, you may never see it.
1: <laughs> and I was
0: thinking, oh, this reminds me of a trip that I took to China. I was in part of the second NPS delegation to study the national parks of China. And we were in Lijiang, high up on the Tibetan plateau. And there was this area that James Hilton had visited. James Hilton, who was the author of Lost, Lost Horizon. And the sign said, of course in Mandarin, but it also said in English clearly, it said to me, it said, welcome to Shangri-La. You know, there are certain places that have this romance to them, that have this energy to them. They are larger in the imagination, or just as large in the imagination, as they are in reality. But there are a few places where the reality exceeds the imagination. Yellowstone, Yosemite, the Grand Canyon. And I can say after being here for 24 hours, probably the entire state of Alaska. When <laughs> I heard jokes that weren't jokes, like, oh, well, you know, have you ever heard that if they split Alaska in two, Texas would be the third largest state in America. <laughs> These invoke the size and the space that you folks call your home. But for me, as a recent visitor, I have to say, and I have to ask you to do something for me, is to recall your sense of being overwhelmed the first time you came into this park. The first time you ever saw these mountains, what it felt like. I mean, I know what you're talking about. I know you know what I'm talking about. I remember the first time I entered Yosemite Valley, and it entered me. I remember walking in the Yosemite Valley, and I was like this. I never walked like this in San Francisco. <laughs> There are people who walk like that (laughs) in San Francisco. Same bearing, same gesture. A sense of connectedness with the creators, with them as well. But places like this bring that out in folks. And so before we even landed, I was already caught. I was already pulled in by the grandeur of this landscape. And the mountains were speaking to me. Now think of it this way. To say today, ma'am, but the mountains are speaking to you. We have the sense of kindredness. Of course they were. Now, when we said this in the 19th century, as John Muir did, people are thinking, he's lost it. <laughs> he needs more medication. <laughs> Climb the mountains and get their Glad tidies. nature's peaceful. Romanticism. We've accepted that now. We've accepted the sense that there are magical places in the world and we happen to be in one. But we forget something very important that these landscapes aren't just static landscapes that are sitting there. These landscapes can actually change people. They can reshape you. They can make you a different person. And I know this for certain because that is what happened to me. I'm from inner-city Detroit. And I'm not just one of those folks that say they're from inner-city Detroit, and they're actually from the suburbs of Detroit. I'm from the inner-city. And in inner-city Detroit, People who look like me tend not to have dreams of being in places like this. And for me, that's a central problem. Because in my days as a ranger, I'm here as an author, but in my days as a ranger, I am swearing in junior rangers from France, from Italy, from Australia, from New Zealand, from every country in Europe and parts of Asia. But I rarely see African-American families from Oakland, from South Central L.A from San Francisco. I don't see them. And I'm thinking, why is it and how is it that people all over the world hear about these places and then people who are citizens of this country do not feel that sense of kinship and connectedness to something that is part of a common inheritance. And so I've devoted my life to trying to change that. Some people have called it an obsession looking at it in a very negative way. <laughs> how many people here would refer to their incredible love for chocolate as an obsession? <laughs> how, how many people are married to people? <laughs> how many people think that loving nature, loving the national parks is not an obsession, it is a civic duty? You have to, because how can you not? See we're in the same, we're in the same camp. But there are issues that preclude the participation of some people in the national parks. And I thought the best way to talk about it is to talk about my own story, my own story. Growing up in Detroit, where no one I knew ever talked about a national park, ever visited a national park. It was, when, when the topic came up about places to go on vacation, it was LA. Why? When you're in Detroit, LA sounds pretty good. Okay. <laughs> And it didn't hurt that I lived next door to the parents of a Motown uh, executive by the name of Norman Whitfield. who did this film in the 70s called Car Wash. And he wrote most of the greatest hits for The, the Temptations, like Papa Was a Rolling Stone, I Heard It Through the Grapevine. He, his parents lived next door to me. He would drive up with his red Jaguar, Had all this money, Had all this style to him. But now if I could go back, I would look right at him and say, have you been to Yosemite? (laughs) And he'd sit there with his sunglasses going, what? No, I haven't been to Yosemite. And then the thought that I have today, why did he not consider a trip to Yosemite? And it comes to me that the answer is this. When I was growing up, there was never a magazine on the table. There was never a story on the radio. There was a never a story on television. There never a story on television that showed people who looked like me visiting a national park. I never saw it. And so because I never saw those images, and I never saw people who mirrored married me, I thought, well, maybe we're not supposed to be there. Maybe that's not something that we do as a culture. And then as I got into parks, I realized, well, this is part of global culture now. This national park idea has spread all over the world. and there I am in China, on the Great Wall of China, World Heritage Site, and I'm visiting national parks in China, and I'm seeing as, oh, wow, this is a ranger from Yosemite. You know, third oldest national park in the United States. What is it that's translated so clearly in other lands that somehow gets garbled in our own country? That's a question that I have. For you and a question that I have for myself. But what led me here was my first wilderness experience after I escaped from Detroit. Did you notice how I said that? (laughs) How many detected that? I did not say after I left Detroit. I said after I escaped from Detroit. Because one thing to keep in mind about inner city communities is that they tend to be Somewhat, somewhat restrictive in terms of the dreams that children have when they're young. How many people here, when they were young, remember talking to their parents about what they wanted to be when they grew up? How many of you remember that? Say, I want to be a doctor, or I want to be a lawyer, I want to do this and I want to do that. And you were looking for that kind of encouragement. And what bothers me is that too many people of color don't necessarily have the dream of, I want to be a park ranger. Because in my household it would have been, what? <laughs> Why would you want to do that? How much do rangers make? Oh, it's Dad, it's not because of the money. I'm growing up in Detroit, it's always because (laughs) of the money. (laughs) But dreams should not be solely put into the context of how much money you make. And so that was something that struck me, that there was a difference in the currency that my family and my community was using, and this other currency in this other place. And I realized that most kids of color, many of them, never have an experience in the national parks. What I'm saying is is that they hear the word national park and they think county park or city park. They're thinking, "Oh, that's the place around the corner where you don't want to be after sunset. <laughs> that's the place where those guys hang out. That's the place where certain deals are made. You don't want to be there." But they're not thinking training program, and they sent me back to Detroit. I never expected that from the park service, <laughs> to send me back to Detroit. And I'm talking to kids who are growing up who actually, I remember saying to the group, how many of you kids have ever seen a dead person? Because this was at the height of the crack cocaine wars that were going on in D.C. Three quarters of the kids raised their hands just on the way to school and seen someone who had died violently. Then I asked again, how many of you have ever been to a national park? None of their hands were up. And I remember thinking, what is this disconnect? What is the root of this disconnect? And how can we solve it? I'm going to show you very clearly how it can be solved. Hi. How are you uh, <laughs> Trust me, I work for the government. <laughs> <laughs> take my man. Isn't that a spiritual? <laughs> and then now I ask, where are we going? Where, where are we going? We're going to Shangri-La. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> Now, did you hear what she just said? She was already culturally preconditioned to, to say, say it again. We're gone. We're going to shine the light. Now, the reason why I mention that is that I, when I was in front of this classroom, as a Ranger in Anacostia, all these kids, every city kids, African American kids, just like myself, I showed them a photograph of a couple in the middle of mountain scenery. And you know, scenery is not the proper word to describe Denali. How many of you bristled at the word of scenery? Not, and it's not scenery. There are ecosystems here. There's interconnectedness. Here. There's all of these things that are going on beneath the surface. 99% of what you can't even see affects everything else that you can see. Or 1% of You know, you me a scene. Sorry. Give me a moment. All right, I'm, I'm okay. okay. So I show these kids a photograph. And in the photograph is a couple in the middle of the mountains. I show a photograph like that to folks like yourself, and could you say that sound? Just so they get it right, make that sound again. Oh. Oh. No, no, no. oh. <laughs> that means something different. No. <laughs> so you say, oh. all right, right. Okay, I showed that photograph. If I had showed that photograph to an audience such as yourself in Yellowstone, Grand Canyon, Zion, Arches, uh, Pictured Rocks, Sleeping Bear Dunes, any national park where it's filled with audiences who already are preconditioned to accept that message that parks belong to them because they already feel that they, they do belong to them. The result would be, everybody else, on the count of three, one, two, three. Aww. That's right, okay. <laughs> By the way, I've heard often oh, from many an audience, this is the best. <laughs> Let me give you a round of applause. She's, she's still a so then I actually took that, that photograph, similar photograph, same photograph, and I showed it to the kids, the young people, these the African-American kids, and Anacostia. And when I showed it to them, one kid raised his hand, and I, after I said, what do you think about this? And his response was that he said, did they make it out? <laughs> <laughs> then I heard a chorus of, are they all right? <laughs> did they get out Okay. Their reaction to that was as if they had been somehow in a terrible accident, a plane had come down, and there they were, trapped in the mountains with no way out. How many movies have you seen like that? No way out. That also determines and shapes the way that we look at nature, especially if you're an urban dweller. And keep in mind that in 1900, most Americans would have classified themselves as being rural. By 2000, it was the exact opposite. Urban And for African-Americans, before 1900, most African-Americans still live south of the Mason-Dixon. My father is a black Indian, Seminole and African, from, from South Carolina. My grandparents are black Cherokees from Oklahoma. And during Reconstruction, a horrible thing was happening. Because, well, you know, essentially we were contesting with rural farmers in the South. We had our rights at that point because the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments had been passed. And now all of a sudden, we're an economic challenger to the status quo, which led to the rise of the KKK. There was no need for the KKK during slavery. Why am I bringing this up? Because I'm talking about cultural perceptions of nature, and that is the root of what I'm saying. There is a cultural perception of nature within the African-American community that is different from the larger community. And that is what needs to be addressed that cultural perception, because people do or behave in the way that they see the world. If you see the world as being a positive, friendly place, you go out into the world like this. (laughs) (laughs) If you feel any sense of fear, terror, that there's a hazard in the world, you behave differently. For example, people, hikers in Yosemite, knowing that the grizzly bear has been extirpated, removed from its former range, they backpack and you somebody like this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe not that extreme. <laughs> but inside they're like that. Oh, this is so beautiful. Range life. They're like that. I worked in Yellowstone for seven years. In Yellowstone National Park, backpackers tend to hike more like this. <laughs> <laughs> How many people here have seen people's hiking in a similar way? They look like they're calm. They're thinking, grizzly. <laughs> grizzly. Yeah. When you add a predator to a landscape and we realize that we are no longer at the top of the food chain, that shapes and changes our behavior. People move through this park that all of you love so much. Some of them are moving with fear on their mind. They're thinking about what is around the bend. They're thinking about what may be behind them. They're thinking about what just stepped off the trail to let them go by. They're not actually thinking about that, but that's what's happening, right? And that would fill them with so much fear. You know, like the bears are seeing a sign that says, right of way, humans. And they're not. So these are some of the issues that I've been dealing with. And I've been using this particular history of Buffalo Soldiers being some of the first stewards to actually communicate to my own people and to the larger community that African-Americans did play a role in the founding of the national parks. Because the cultural perception is the exact opposite. I have heard from African-Americans. They have said to me, black folks ain't got nothing to do with uh, national parks. That's not something we do. And then when you hear, oh, well, no, actually, four troops of cavalry. In 1903, 9th Cavalry rode to Yosemite and Sequoia and served as some of the first park rangers. Then you hear, huh, really? And then you say, and it happened in 1904. Huh. See, it happened a different huh. <laughs> <laughs> and it says, and that was preceded in 1899 by the 24th Infantry. And the flat hat that rangers wear descends from the campaign hat worn by soldiers of the old army. So before the National Park Service even existed, there were African Americans in a stewardship role in the second and third oldest national parks in the United States. And yet, within my own community, the perception is, that's not anything to do with us. So that lack of awareness is part of the problem. The other part of the problem is this. I'm going to step away from here, and I'm going to pretend I'm stepping into... And what i like you folks to do, and as soon as I step into that space, is just to applaud, you or me, just to applaud. <laughs> that was good. Let's do that. I felt good. <laughs> do one more time. <laughs> What's the effect of what you just did on a complete stranger coming into a space that fills them with a little bit more fear and anxiety than perhaps the average visitor. What's the effect of what you just did? What would it be the effect on me? You saw it. What was it? Welcome. Say it louder. Surprise. Surprise, but also welcome. 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 That's right, welcome. As a group, some communities of color, in particular African-Americans, have never felt that invitation of welcome. And some could argue and have argued, well, the National Parks are for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. Roosevelt Arch, Gardner, Northeast Entrance, Yellowstone National Park. Why do we need to issue a special welcome when everyone is welcome? But if you don't feel that that welcome is there, it's easy to go over to the opposite side that there is no welcome. Of course, (coughs) keep in mind, for many years we had some issues here in our country with regard to race. Didn't we have that for many years, show of hands? And some would argue we still have those issues. People think that, oh, there's an African-American who's president of the United States. The issues are gone. Well, when I spoke with President Obama in the White House, actually, I didn't really speak with him because I was in a state of shock, (laughs) because I was with Ken Burns and Dayton Duncan, so I was just basically shaking his hand as he was telling me about his first trip to Yellowstone. And I had this smile on my face, and all I was thinking of was, oh, my God, this is the first African-American president of the United States. Oh, my God. (laughs) 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 Barack Obama shaking my hand. Oh, my God, what is he doing now? (laughs) He's telling me a story. (laughs) He's telling me a story about when he was walking in Yellowstone, and he got close to a bison. And his grandmother, and by the way, he never let go of my hand. This is all happening. He's holding on my hand. His grandmother was about 50 feet away, and he got really close to a bison, and there was a declivity, a, a hole in the ground that prevented the bison from getting too close to President Obama. But his grandmother could not see, could not see that hole. So she was thinking she was about to watch her grandson die, which is something that is antagonistic to the notion of being a grandmother, to allow that to happen. So she's yelling, Barack, 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 what are you doing? And he's looking at her and thinking, what is the problem? It's just, it's there, I'm here, they can't even get to me. And he's telling me the story, and as he's telling me the story, everyone else, could you just lean in? Could you just lean in? Could you just lean in? Everybody's doing that, and I realize, as I'm holding his hand like that, and everyone's Leaning in, I'm thinking, oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> this guy just starts telling a story. Lean in,
1: everybody.
0: <laughs> and of course, for me, everything he's saying is just <laughs> because I'm thinking that I'm in the presence of, of, Barack, of President Obama. And then I told that story later to Ken Burns, and he said, it happens to everyone. I'm thinking, it happened to Ken. <laughs> and it did. That's the kind of the effect that he has. But... As far as I know, he only recently, other than that, has visited Nash Parks. You know how many of folks heard that he took his family there in Yellowstone? He's been to the, to the Tetons. Okay. But here's the issue. When African-Americans, or many African-Americans, see the President of the United States in the Grand Canyon, I can't speak for all African-Americans. I can speak for some people in my own family. And I have an aunt that would just say, well, he's president. <laughs> He's, he's got to go there. <laughs> you think he'd be there if he didn't, didn't want to be there? I mean, he's, he's got it. it's his job. How many are of you are, you are here because you just have to be here? You've got to be here. If you had your choice, you'd be elsewhere. But it's just that you got dragged, kicking, and stream, scream, screaming to the like, show of hands. And those of you who show your hands, wait, make sure that your supervisor's not watching. <laughs> okay. right, don't show your hands. Mind you, not sure. Okay. So there's an issue there. But who have we not seen here? We haven't seen other African Americans who are not the President of the United States here in the park. So when I wrote this letter to this very obscure media person by the name of Oprah Winfrey, (laughs) it was this sort of a last-ditch effort to access and communicate this sense of welcome. Yes, I'm looking at you right there, and I'm talking to you, because this is a connection right here. saying I'm trying to get through to Oprah, because Oprah, my understanding is, she gets through To the planet. You guys are laughing, but I'm serious. You didn't see Oprah when she got the Kennedy Center honors? Do you remember when Chris Rock, I mean, Oprah was sitting next to the first family, and Chris Rock said, Here we are, folks, in the the presence of the most powerful person on the planet. And sitting right next to her is the president of the United States. (laughs) That was not lost on me. And so what did Oprah do? She introduced for many African-Americans mm-hmm. that national parks are a common inheritance. They are a birthright for all of us as Americans. And of course, with World Heritage Sites, it's a global inheritance. But you know, we've got a soft pedal in my UN thing. You know, it's, it's, We'll talk. <laughs> <laughs> that was a welcome. And since that show, every time I leave my office, when I decide to, because it's scary out there, I leave my audience, I run into African-Americans, and says, I saw you at Oprah. We saw you. That's why we're here. We're here because we saw the, that Oprah Winfrey show, and she invited us to go, go to Yosemite. So that's why we're here. And I said, well, what do you think? Do you like it? Oh, it's beautiful. It's more beautiful than I thought it would be. Hey, case in point, this is what you More beautiful than I thought it would be. If you come from a culture where the word park means, as I said before, the county park and the city park, that's park. And then you hear a ranger such as myself going on and on and on. Oh, the ring of your gun used to be so people the light, the mountains are right. You can almost feel them rising up, and the clouds are so close. You can reach it, and you can touch them, and your fingertips are stained with the clouds, and angels have walked. How many of you are thinking right now, medication to this man as quickly <laughs> as possible? <clears throat> And that's when, so when I talked, I just came back from Juneteenth. You know, the celebration of the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, 1865, June 19th, in Fresno. Okay, I was at the Juneteenth celebration, and the perception was, why? Why would I go there? What's up there? They... Remember the phrase, poetry is what's lost in translation. Yosemite, Denali. Grand Canyon are lost in translation because there's nothing or very little in their experience that corresponds with El Capitan or Denali. So it becomes diminished to some degree because there's nothing to compare it to. So having that welcome, for many African-Americans, that was the first time. By the way, think of this. It's easy to just say, Oprah, daytime television. What's so important about that? First time in the history of American television that an African-American was seen camping. Oprah did not have to camp. How many people here have heard that she has money? (laughs) Could Oprah have stayed at the Iwani? Show of hands. Could Oprah buy the Iwani? (laughs) But she can't. And she can't because she actually read that letter that I wrote her saying, we need to give this sense of welcome. African Americans own Yosemite. They own the national parks as much as anyone else. She gave the welcome. And so with a welcome, that's all someone needs. Because there are people on the edge. They're on the edge of coming here. Do you feel the energy from those folks? They're like right there on the precipice of making that choice to visit Denali. But they're <laughs> like that. But it's like this. You have an African American family. Remember, before the Civil Rights Movement, African Americans could not easily travel cross-country. You couldn't just go up to a hotel and say, hey, I'm here with my family. I'd like to spend the night. Here's my credit card. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? You couldn't do that. And so we stay. There are places that would be set up throughout the West. Oh, you can stay at the Joneses' place in Topeka. They'll take us in. So it wasn't an easy thing to, tra- to travel cross-country. Things had changed. It was called the Civil Rights Movement. Let's hear it again. Right on. Right on. <laughs> it was the Civil Rights Movement. But even though now those barriers aren't there, the barrier that we have to surmount, the barrier that we have to tear down is the barrier right in here. And that's the biggest barrier of all. The barrier in the mind that still does not let you feel that that place belongs to you. And that's what we're working on right now. Because there's so many people out there who just don't feel that connection. So when Oprah said (laughs) and did what she did on that show, that, to some degree, removed that barrier. And Oprah seemed to think it was going to work. I remember the last time I spoke with her. Sounds like a play. The last time I spoke with Oprah. An interesting place. I like it. The last time I spoke with Oprah. We were in Chicago. Oh, I remember the day because I was only there for a day. She flew me in for one day. All I saw of Chicago was out the window of my, my hotel room at night. Chicago. Pizza. Great food. And all I saw was a hotel room in the studio at Harpo. How many of you folks are crying for me? <laughs> no, hey, they're, not, they're not really crying for me. I'm there with Oprah, you know. No one has any tears. But you're from Illinois? Oh, okay, we'll talk. <laughs> After it was done, I had a conversation with Oprah. And I said to her, do you think this will work? And she looked at me like I had just crawled out from under a rock somewhere. Like I, and I didn't know who she was. You know, she's, I said, so Ms. Winfrey, do you think this will work? Do you think this will happen? It won't." She just went like, of course it will. <laughs> <laughs> Almost like she was on the edge going, shh. So wait now. Where have you been all this time in National Park? <laughs> <laughs> and of course I have been. Yay. And what I'm here to say to you is it is working. Because I have met 20, 30 African-Americans since the broadcast of the show in Yosemite that are there because they saw the Oprah Winfrey show. And why wouldn't it work? This is someone who would say, "Gentlemen here filming me has a jacket that says, North Face. Oprah says, I love my North Face jacket. Sales, North Face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, So if she says, Yosemite, closest, closest place to heaven I've ever seen, or some quote along those lines, everyone is hearing that. By the way, it's not just African-Americans are hearing that, it's a completely demographic from Ken Burns' The National Park's America's Best Idea. When I was in the, after I was in that film, I gave a keynote speech at the dedication of the Port Chicago Naval Magazine, where 320 African-Americans were killed in a violent explosion loading munitions, naval munitions, just north of San Francisco. I'm walking around, there are other rangers there as well, and the European-Americans that were there all looked at me and said, hey, we saw you in the Ken Burns film. That was great, that was a wonderful film. Oh, we loved that film. The African-Americans, they saw me they just sort of went, I'll do that again in case you missed it. They saw me and they just went, and they kept going. No connection at all. Many of them did not see that film, because to have watched that film, you also have to watch PBS. And uh, many African-American people don't watch PBS. I did when I was a kid, and friends of mine did, but it's not exactly a cultural tradition. Oprah happens. I'm giving a Buffalo Soldier program in Hawaii, which, by the way, is a really good gig. (laughs) (laughs) Buffalo Soldiers built the trail to the top of Mauna Loa in 1915. Another hidden story. The Park Service is filled with hidden stories, and we have a collective responsibility to tell all of those stories. I'm serious. And if we don't tell a story, we're part of the problem. So anyway. That sounded almost political, didn't it? Yeah. So I'm on the slopes of Mauna Loa, not believing that I'm actually there, walking up in a cavalry uniform, talking about a buffalo soldier history to people who know the trail. And myself, I've never been on the trail before, but I'm talking like I'm an expert. Because that's how the Park Service sometimes works. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny is that most people that apply are their Park Service employees. <laughs> Anyway, I'm walking up the slopes of, of Mauna Loa. Then it's done. My wife and I take a couple days. We're at the King Kamehameha Hotel. And, uh, and I'm off duty. I'm off the clock. I decide that it's time for a daiquiri. Anybody here, be honest, have had that thought, it's time for a daiquiri. <laughs> I'm off the clock. Time for a daiquiri. I go up to the little bar thing. Haven't had a daiquiri in years. Years. And the women that are working there are Southeast Asian. And so we talk a little bit. And I, I turn around. And there's a tap on my shoulder. I turn back. They're smiling at me. And they said, you were on Oprah. <laughs> and I said, yes, I was. He says, yeah, you were talking about people of color, black people not visiting national parks. We saw that. That was a good show. I said, yeah, it makes you want to visit parks. I said, oh, great. Thank you. Whoa. I say, whoa. whoa. That's what I was feeling. <laughs> yeah. Then earlier this year, I was at the George Wright Conference talking about what I've been doing with the, uh, increasing cultural diversity, or my focus on that. And I was in New Orleans, you know, it was a problem going to New Orleans because, you know, everyone was there for the science conference and having in a place like New Orleans is just, Orleans. I mean, who would go to New Orleans, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm checking into the hotel, <coughs> American women, at the front desk. They give me the key, everything's, over the card, I'm getting all set. I turn around, I'm walking away, tap on my shoulder. I look back and they say, you're the brother that was on Oprah, aren't you? You were talking about national parks. And we saw that. I've never been to a park, but now I want to go. That's what she said. I'm just thinking, that's why she looked at me like I was an idiot.
1: <laughs>
0: and that's just since the broadcast of that show. So what I'm saying is, and this is what I would say to the Park Service, is that there are ways of speeding things up. The Park Service is committed to achieving cultural diversity because the Park Service is fully aware that by 2050, we will have a minority-majority culture. There's, there are already six states that are on the cusp of having minority, majority cultures—California, Hawaii, Mexico—you know it's—it's it's already happening. Texas is already happening. So if we have not, or have not done what we should do to reflect the diversity of America, both on one side of the visitor center desk and the other side of the visitor center desk, those taxpayers who vote may decide to vote us out of existence. Because of course, it takes an act of Congress to create a national park, and we already know there have been national parks we have been, or that have been abolished, no longer exist. Platt National Park. No longer exists, but it was a national park at one time. How many people here would want that to happen, would want to see with their own eyes the, uh, the abolition of a place that brings them to tears? <laughs> that makes them think that the dawn of the world is alive and it's still here. The first day is still here right now, and you can see it every morning here in Denali. Who would want that to be replaced by malls, shopping malls, and condominiums? I know no one here in this audience would, but we have a tendency to take certain things for granted, and we should never take for granted the idea of national parks because before it was a reality. It was only an idea. Only an idea <laughs> in the minds of a few people. But now it's real. And we need to keep it real. And this is part of the solution. Relevancy. That's why I do what I do. To show that parks should be relevant to every culture. And if they're not, parks can become irrelevant. So now, lately, something the Park Service has been doing that I'm thrilled about is the naturalization ceremonies in the national parks. I went to one at, at uh, Glacier Point in Yosemite. Beautiful day, but of course, there's been a beautiful day and, for tens of thousands of years. (laughs) So it's always a beautiful day there. And there were people from 17 different countries raising their hands, taking the oath of allegiance, becoming citizens of the United States with a light shining on El Capitan and Half Dome and Bernal and Nevada Fall flowing out of the sunset and into shadow. And that moment of when they raised their hand and decided, I'm going to be an American, I am an American, is indistinguishable and inseparable from what they were seeing and feeling around them. Now that's stewardship. So do I care about the Grand Canyon? That's the place where I became a citizen. And then eventually, that's where Grandma became a citizen of this country. That's when we became Americans at the Grand Canyon, <coughs> or at Yellowstone, or at Yosemite. That's a very powerful thing that we're doing. So I have a lot of hope. You know, I'm filled with hope. Because I know that things have been very bad in the past, but I know that things can be much better in the future, and that they will be, and we can play a role in making those changes happen. We always tend to think that one person cannot make a difference. I'll say that louder. We can always be taught that one person cannot make a difference. That's usually expressed by the people who are afraid of change. When I started out with the Buffalo Soldier story, it was forgotten in Yosemite. Ten people in the entire park, probably less than, less than ten. Five people in the entire park probably knew that African Americans once protected Yosemite. Five people. The story had been interpreted by two other people, to my knowledge, in the last 100 years. And it wasn't buried history. All you had to do was go into the superintendent report and read, oh, 1899, 24th Infantry. My memory serves me correct. 24th Infantry, they were Buffalo Soldiers. It was right there. Fifteen years later... Ken Burns, National Parks, America's Best Idea. Oprah Winfrey Show. Just those two events. Nearly 80 million people. For a story that at one time when I started out, an elementary school teacher in Yosemite (laughs) Valley said to one of her students, why would you want to write a report about that? Who would be interested? And I didn't stop there. I, who am obsessed... (laughs) Majored in poetry. Imagine how this went over with a father who was a military dad. <laughs> Vietnam, Korea, Berlin after World War II, Greenland. My dad never talked about Greenland all that much. I'd say Greenland's eyes would just twitch up. Something about under, underground bunkers. go there. I wrote this to communicate this particular story. And it's the first novel by an African-American that has ever been published by the Sierra Club. And they liked it so much, they sent me and made me sign a film contract to go along with a book contract, because my dream all along was a feature film. Why? Because film is the medium of the 20th century. I once heard Robert Redford say that a few people will read the book, but it's the film that will reach them. And film is how you really want to communicate a story. For example, how many folks here have heard of the film Glory? How many people here? heard of the film Glory before the film came out? Like, how many people here knew about the history that was the foundation for the film Glory? 54th Massachusetts, Robert Shaw, not very few. So, for me, when I saw that first historic image of five guys on horseback, in Yosemite, and I realized that it was in Yosemite where they were patrolling, and that they were rangers before the term was even coined. I didn't see five guys on horseback. I saw very clearly Denzel Washington, Morgan, <laughs> Morgan Freeman, <laughs> Cuba Gooding <Bennington>, junior, <laughs> Jamie Foxx. I, mean, I, I had the cast, the crew, even the cameramen all worked out. And people at the beginning thought I was crazy. Well, last year, I got invited by Robert Redford, to read my book at Sundance. Oh. And it sounds so great, it sounds so wonderful, but Robert Redford didn't show up. <laughs> I'm from Detroit, I get disrespected. I'm used to that. I've heard about that, but Robert Redford stood me up. <laughs> <laughs> Simply because he was working on a film. Is that a good excuse? <laughs> it was, called a conspirator. And so he couldn't make it back to Sundance. But I was there reading from this book about a history. That was overlooked, forgotten, and perceived to be unimportant. I recently sent a copy of this book to two people I'm hoping might help. That's the thing about when you're just running into people. Morgan Freeman Mm -hmm. has a copy of this. Maya Angelou. Do that louder. (laughs) Maya Angelou has a copy of this. Oprah has a copy of this. President Obama has a copy of this. (coughs) Samuel L. Jackson has a copy of this. And so if I hear nothing from those folks, I'm going to be thinking, that's what they think of my book.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I'll probably hear something, and that's my hope, because that's all that's been driving me all this time, is hope. And the reason why I have this hope, it comes down to something as simple as something that all of you can relate to. How many of you clearly have so many memories of a little boy or a little girl enthralled with this sense of wonder As to where they are. Eyes like this. Seeing their first bear. Seeing a wildflower. Out in the net. Feeling elevated because they are elevated. Because they're in the mountains. Becoming a junior ranger for the first time. How many of you have memories like that? Of seeing children just excited that they're in a place like... People think, it's so easy to think that when you're an adult, that wonder has left your life. That now that you're older, the mystery is gone. Now that you're older, there's not this sense of lightheartedness that the world is an incredible place. And what childhood and children are all about is every day, they see something new, and you can see it clearly written on their faces. Parks are places where every adult can become a child again. The best scientists are scientists who have held on to that sense of wonder. The best naturalists do the exact same thing. And the best people do the exact same thing. Every park has a story, and behind every park, there's someone who is passionate about the telling of that story. Was there someone passionate about protecting Denali? How many people here have a favorite place in the world? A place that makes them feel connected to the earth, a place that's their place. Think of this, there are people out there that don't have that. Never even thought of that. Like that woman that said, why would I go there? There's nothing there. And there's so much that's there. So I want all these kids that I know right now in my neighborhood, in Detroit, who never wake up and say to themselves, Oh, something's wrong. I need to go to Yellowstone. Hmm. I want those kids to have that experience. I want them to have that desire that they want to be in a place like Denali. Because they should. Because there is something magical that's here. When you are in the presence of a grizzly bear, You are in the presence of magic. Yes, it's difficult to think of it in those terms.
1: In the moment. In the moment.
0: But it is something that's magical. And it opens you up in a way that is hard to put into words. Actually, I'll put it into words. Fear is a key that unlocks the imagination. Is someone writing this down? Fear is a key that unlocks the imagination. How many people see people walking in cities and they're walking like this? Or they're not even looking around what's around them, they are just like,
1: okay,
0: you cannot walk that way in grizzly bear country. You're walking through grizzly bear habitat, and, you're like... and because you're wide awake thinking that your life may be ending at any moment, <laughs> you listen and you go, know, oh, look, there's a junker right there. I saw a junker as I was outside trying to be, getting inspired. I saw the junker, I was thinking, didn't I just see you in the Sierra? <laughs> then I listen and says, "Was that bluespeak?" Oh, I always like bluespeak because they sound like Charlie Parker. <laughs> Sorry, it's a jazz thing. <laughs> yeah. You need to listen to more of them to get that reference. Yeah. So I can go on and on. I have. It's been documented. <laughs> but I just wanted to give you a sense of why I do what I do, and what drives me. And the drive is simply to make this connection with people who don't yet realize that their birthright is wonder. These incredible landscapes, these incredible stories. And I want to share that. And I want that to be shared. I want people to feel that connection. Not about what I'm doing, but about the places and the stories that are in our parks. That's what drives me. And I know it. it's what drives you as well. So thank you. That, uh, I had till about midnight to answer questions. So I can take this. Okay. No, no, till darkness. Till darkness. <laughs> I could talk until nightfall. <laughs> deeper, so. I noticed around here, I arrived uh, and I noticed that later in the day was around 5 o'clock. It's, that it's been around 5 o'clock since I got here. That's a new thing for me. Uh, but any questions?